So, good evening, everyone. Nice to be with you again. <laughs> so, it's our last uh, gathering this this time. It's been very nice for me to spend all this time with you. This is the best uh, trip I've had to Europe in my whole life. So, uh, very, very uh, affectionately accommodated is how I feel. And I thank you for all of that. I feel very indebted to the Polish devotees, all of you, for all that you've done to uh, make this possible and to um, and those of you who have been instrumental in bringing other devotees here. Mm. I encourage you to continue to do that more and more. I think we can we can help the Polish, the 37 million Polish, Polish people that there are. <laughs> it's a small country compared to my country. I feel like we could conquer it. Mm. <laughs> so we'll we'll make our best effort hmm? conquer it for Krishna. So, are there any questions tonight? Yes, Udarani. How what? How is that that he is Radharani and Balita? Uh-huh. I'm curious about this person and Uh-huh. Okay. Well, this is a fairly esoteric question. So Anna may have a little difficulty following everything. And, and some others as well. But that is always a problem when speaking. Too high for some and too low for others. So, the question is about the pancha tattva. Pancha means five and tattva means metaphysical truths. So it is said that Sri Chaitanya, the avatar of Krishna for the present age, uh, appeared in five features that were personified in his associates. And uh, these features were Krishna himself and his expansion, his avatar, his his shaktis, both his um, internal shakti and his marginal shakti, which we are considered to be constituted of, units of consciousness that could function in material existence or in the spiritual existence. 
And so among them, the person of Gadadhar, who was a pundit, a very learned devotee, um, the question is about his, something about the ontological uh, position of Gadadhar pundit. Hmm. Hello. I was talking to your son, saying hello to him. I mean, uh, your son, Samohini's son. Yeah. Someday he will be sitting here, we hope. <laughs> so, Gadadhar uh, Pandit, um, yes, he is um, unlike the rest of the members of the Panchatattva. There is not much written about him in Chaitanya Charitamrita. Chaitanya Charitamrita explains the Panchatattva. Hmm. And when it comes to Gradhar Pandit, not much is said. The reason for this is because the Chaitanya Charitamrita labors to explain the very esoteric idea that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is Radha and Krishna combined. So just to kind of wrap your head around that is difficult enough, theologically. It's very complex. If the author was then to also say, and Garadhar Pandit is Radha. It's even more confusing. Hmm? So he he made his focus on explaining the how Rasaraj Krishna and Mahabhav Radha combined in one person as Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Hmm? Um, excuse me, uh, but um, a little bit. Is written about him in the Gorgana Deshtipika, where it is said that he is Radha and Lalita, and you're asking about that. Hmm? And how does that all work? Hmm? The idea is something like this that Krishna wanted to steal the bhava of Radha. Actually, he wanted to take the position of Radha, the bhava, the ecstasy of Radha, and understand himself from that devotional and loving perspective. But she would not give him that because she knew it would cause him great difficulty. Hmm. If Krishna was to accept the, the bhava, the ecstasy of, of Radha, it would be he would go crashing to the ground. Hmm. So he had to steal it, hmm. even though he was told, this is not good for you. <laughs> That's his, his nature. So uh, he made the attempt to steal the bhav of Radha. And so Radha had to go after him and protect him. Hmm. So Gauradhar Pandit is the manifestation of Radha seeking to protect Krishna f 
from her own bhava and ecstasy and what it might do to him. Therefore, Gadadhar Pandit was following Chaitanya Mahaprabhu very closely. And in Leela of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Sachi Devi, the mother of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, personally instructed Gadadhar, you please always stay with my son and take care of him. He's, he's very uh, uh, dangerous to himself. Hmm? This came on the occasion when Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was starting to feel something of the bhava of Radha, and he called out, Krishna, Krishna, where is Krishna? I must meet Krishna. And Gadadhar Pandit said to him, Calm down, calm down, my friend. Nimai, Krishna is in your heart. And instead of pacifying Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, he began to tear apart his chest like this in madness of ecstasy. So Gadadhar Pandit had to stop him, protect him from himself. What the power of that ecstasy would do to him. So Satchimata saw this and said, You please always stay with my son, Nimai. Watch him very carefully. So Gadadhar Pandit is following him. He followed him to Puri. Hmm. And because Chaitanya Mahaprabhu went to Jagannath Puri at the request of his mother, when he tried to leave Jagannath Puri to go and visit Vrindavan, even though Gadadhar Pandit had made a vow to stay in Puri, hmm, thinking that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu will always stay here. When Chaitanya Mahaprabhu left, started to leave, then Gadadhar Pandit was willing to break his religious vow of staying in Puri to stay with Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And he went far enough following Chaitanya Mahaprabhu that he actually crossed outside of the limits of Puri, Jagannath Puri. But Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, at that time, manifesting himself as the Yuga avatar, wanted to see that such religious principles would not be broken by his own people and thus give a bad name, thinking that in his name it was okay to break religious vows. He forced Gadadhar Pandit to return to Puri. Hmm? But my point is, basically, that Gadadhar Pandit, for the most part, hmm, plays this role in Gaur-lila to protect Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who is Krishna, from himself when he pursues the bhava of Radha, which as we see in the Leela, made him quite mad. And he did crash to the ground and he would perspire blood and and tears would pour out of his eyes like, like a fountain, bathing people and very shocking. It is said... What is that verse? Baya Bisha Jwala Hoy Bitare Anandamoy Krishna Premer Atbhuta Charita. The Krishna Prem, love of Krishna, it looks very terrifying on the outside. 
but on the inside it is full of ananda. Hmm? This is the character of Krishna Prem. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is showing this extreme example of Krishna Prem, Radha Prem, and it was rather disconcerting. He looked very troubled, crying all the time, wailing and falling and fainting and and so forth. Hmm. So anyway, Gadadhar Pandit trying to protect him. But although he is Radha, at the same time, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is Krishna. He's trying to experience the bhava of Radha. Hmm? And so, to whatever extent he was successful in the presence of Gadadhar Pandit, Gadadhar would be left with the bhava of Lalita. Lalita Saki is a close friend of Radhika. Hmm? So the closest you could get to Radha Bhava is found in, in Lalita Saki. Hmm? Lalita, Vishaka, Gopi. These two gopis, milkmaidens and Krishna Leela, they are qualified to be Yuteshwaris. It means group leaders. They could be group leaders and have their own manjaris, own attendants, hmm? and have direct rendezvous in romantic spiritual love with Krishna. Like Chandravali is a group leader, she has her own manjaris. Hmm? However, although they are so qualified in this way, they have affection for Radha and therefore they subordinate themselves to Radha rather than being group leaders themselves. And thus they become leaders amongst Radha's manjaris, although they are sakis and not manjaris. Hmm? So, Garata Pandit is Radha, but when Mahaprabhu takes the assumes the bhava of Radha in the presence of Garadhar, then he's left with the bhava of Lalita, which is close to Radha's, but hmm, not the full measure. That's why he's sometimes called as Lalita Saki and sometimes as Radha. Also we find in Jagannath Puri, Karadhar Pandit exhibiting the bhava of Rukmini. In Krishna Leela, there are two most prominent gopis, Chandravali and Radha. When Krishna Leela moves to Dwaraka, Although Chandravali and Radhika stay in in uh, Vrindavan, some aspect of them goes with Krishna. Krishna also stays in Vrindavan. He doesn't go to Dwarka. Some aspect of Krishna goes to Dwarka. Hmm? How do we know that Krishna stays in Vrindavan? Even though he, he appears to go to Dwarka. And we say that is only an aspect of him going to 
Dwarka. How do we know that he's still in Vrindavan? Well, the scripture says he never steps out of Vrindavan, but it looks like he steps out. We're saying only, only a, an aspect of himself steps out and goes to Dwarka and Mathura. But how do we know that he's still there? We don't see him there. Hmm? But we know that he's there because we see the measure of love for Krishna that is there. So he must be there. Wherever there is love of Krishna, Krishna is there. So when it says Krishna never leaves Vrindavan, it means in this sense, one sense, that the love of Krishna, hmm, this is love for Swayam Bhagavan, that is not manifest anywhere else but Vrindavan. Therefore he is more in Vrindavan in the form of the love for him when he's not there than he is in Dwarka when he is there. He's more present in Vrindavan in the love of the devotees when he's not there than he is present in Dwarka when he's actually there. So at any rate, when Krishna does go to Dwarka, that aspect of himself, then some aspect of Radha and Chandravali also go. And they are manifest in Dwarka as Rukmini and um, what is her name? Satyabhama. Hmm? In Vrindavan, Radha is the foremost gopi and Chandravali is second. When they go, aspects of themselves, they go to Dwarka in this Leela, then Chandravali takes the lead position and Radhika takes the second position. The lead position in Dwarka amongst Krishna's queens is Rukmini. So Chandravali becomes Rukmini and Radhika becomes Satyabhama. And we see the same type of love. Rukmini is very submissive lover, like Chandravali. And Satyabhama is a very dominant lover, like Radhika. So, when Gadadhar Pandit was in Jagannath Puri with Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Jagannath Puri corresponds with Dwaraka in Gorlila. Hmm? So when Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is in Jagannath Puri, we saw, we see in the Leela in Garadhar Pandit the uh, disposition of Rukmini. Hmm. point here is that just like inside of Krishna all the different avatars are present he is Swayam Bhagavan Radhika is Swayam Shakti so all of the different Shakti Tattva uh, consorts of the avatars they are all present in her Lakshmi is present in her all the queens uh, in their ecstasy are present in her and so forth hmm? 
So, relative to where Gadadhar Pandit is and the condition of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, some aspect of the Shakti Tattva that is all present in Radha will manifest in her. So, in Puri, we find this the Bhava of Rukmini hmm, manifesting. Chandravali, I mentioned, her Bhava is also inside of Radha. <laughs> Everything that is part of Chandravali is also found in Radha, but uh, so well, we see this in in the, in the Leela uh, in Puri of uh, Balabacharya. Hmm? And there, Balaba was thought to be from a Rasik point of view not a good fit for the association association of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's uh, devotees. Hmm? But he went to Gadadhar Pandit and wanted to take shelter of him. Hmm? And Gadadhar Pandit gave him initiation hmm? in Madhurya Rasa. Hmm? And at that time, if we study it, we see he shows the mood of Rukmini. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu became somewhat upset with him. Hmm? And he doesn't react like Satyabhama, who would become very um, angry himself, herself, but very submissive. Uh, Krishna Das Kaviraj explains she is showing the mood of, uh, Gradhar is showing the mood of, of, of Rukmini. Hmm? He initiated Balabacharya into Madhurya Rasa. And in Balabacharya Sampradaya, we find Chandravali is the dominant role, the son, Vital, of, Ch- of Balaba, who became the successor, Acharya, after Balaba, was considered to be the incarnation, incarnation of Chandravali. Hmm. So the point is that we find all these different aspects of Radha that are within her in Gradhar Pandit and manifest at different times relative to the condition of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Hmm? in his effort to fully experience the bhava of Radha. Hmm. Pujapat Sridhar Marsh uh, described um, Gadada Pandit like an empty bag. Hmm? With it, it, the, the, the goods inside have been stolen by someone else and he's got the bag and he's running after to get it, try to get it back. Hmm? So, Gadadhar Pandit is, is Radha with her bhava stolen by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, so he's always following Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, something like that. This is the same idea. Hmm? He described Gadadhar Pandit also like, like zero, empty. Hmm? But he meant by that an emptiness or a negativity like we find in separation a neediness, not a mayavad zero, but some with great necessity, with separation, with great longing, with great intensity, following Chaitanya Mahaprabhu 
to protect him from her ba his ba her bav and and to get the bav back that he had stolen something like that. This is all, of course, poetic to speak about it like this. But the point being here that, that in Garadhar Pandit we find great intensity and so that that this separation um, uh, fosters. And so he's a very uh, exceptional example of the kind of neediness for spiritual life and for uh, the higher ideal that um, um, is very instructive to us. In Gaur Leela, I mentioned the other day that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu may be worshipped in two ways. One way is in relation to himself and his consort Vishnu Priya. The other way is when he's together with Garadhar Pandit. Hmm? So Bhaktivinoda Thakur looked at the worship of uh, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and Vishnu Priya, means Vishwambar, hmm? Chaitanya of Navadweep, not Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, hmm? that is his sannyas name, but Vishwambar. Uh, and and Vishnu Priya. This uh, he saw as a um, kind of a, a, kind of a kind of a vidhimarg approach to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, where he's recognized as as God hmm? more than seeing him in terms of the bhav of Radha. Hmm? So when he's with Ganadha Pandit, the idea is he's, he's stolen the bhava of Radha. Hmm? He's Radha and Krishna combined, and Ganadha Pandit is what is left over from Radha after her bhava has been stolen, and he's trying to get it back, something like this. And worshipping of, of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and Gadadhar Pandit then, Bhaktivinod saw it as a, as a Ragmarg orientation to, uh, to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Because the Ragmarg idea, of course, is that Krishna is pursuing the bhava of Radha, the experience of himself from her perspective, from her vantage point. This is very, very esoteric, uh, and it's behind the reasons for Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's appearance. But it all speaks to us about the, the Ragmarg of Vrindavan. Whereas Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, as the Yuga avatar with his consort hmm, Vishnu Priya, does not speak to us of those internal reasons for his descent, but rather to the external reasons for his descent, establishing the Yuga Dharma, the chanting of Hare Krishna, and so on and so forth. Hmm. So. This is the difference. Does that help?
some things. <laughs> it's a very complex topic, yeah. And therefore, not that much has been written about it either. So, love and know. Worship and know. What else? Yes. Yes, how can there be reason? It's called agyata. means unknowing. So unknowingly, on the part of the jiva, he performs some activity in relation to bhakti, engages in bhakti, and it has an, an effect. So it's not that it's anything calculated on the part of the jiva. It's unknowing. And its cause is said it to be causeless because it is a, a result of mercy, inasmuch as devotees are the Kripa Shakti of Bhagawan. Hmm? Jiva Goswami reasons in Bhakti Sandarbha that it's a little difficult for Krishna to show empathy to the suffering. Uh, souls in the world because he has no experience of suffering whatsoever. Hmm? And he's completely enwrapped in uh, love with Radha and his own intimate circle. Hmm? And so it's a little hard to relate to the suffering of the jivas. Hmm? When you look at someone like Mahavishnu, this manifestation of Krishna, however, you find that he's closer to the world. Hmm? And we find more c compassion, capacity for compassion manifests in Mahavishnu, for example. Hmm? Um, but that manifestation of Krishna in which there is a greatest capacity for his compassion to manifest is in the devotees who previously had experience of suffering in the world and have become free from suffering. That suffering is like a dream. Hmm? They remember something. It was very, that suffering, that attachment is very problematic and they see others suffering because they're in proximity to them. So they have, they are the manifestation of Krishna that has the greatest capacity to sh uh, manifest Krishna's compassion. Therefore, such devotees 
are sometimes called the Kripa Shakti of Bhagawan, the, the Shakti, the power, the potency of, of mercy. Hmm? So there is no reason for mercy. Mercy is an overriding of reason or justice. What might be the most reasonable thing, considering all the circumstances, may be dismissed and mercy may be shown. Hmm? Something like that. Um, I suppose materially sometimes there's some, you could say maybe there's some reason for showing mercy or something like that, but in the full sense of the term of mercy, then there's no reason. It's overriding reason. Hmm? So, and the devotees that are moving in the world, not under the influence of justice, of karma, hmm? then they are always showing mercy in a sense, affording mercy by whatever they do because they're engaged in Krishna's service and it overflows to other people. They open a temple hmm? and somebody sees, there's oh, there's a new building on the street and, and so they go and visit and there they see the deity. They get Sukriti unknowingly, agyata. They don't know why, what's happening to them or what, what it's about. And so they get, uh, or they hear the kirtan. Hmm? And uh, unknowingly, then some, we call bhakti sukriti comes to them. There's different kinds of sukriti. There's sukriti in relation to karma, in relation to jnana, and in relation to bhakti. So if we get this kind of sukriti for bhakti, we become predisposed towards bhakti, psychologically predisposed towards the philosophy so it makes sense to us. Hmm? That's why, you know, we reason about bhakti, but actually hmm, our capacity to, to embrace bhakti is based more on our sukriti than our reasoning. And because after all, any philosophy will have its holes and shortcomings. If it's a philosophy speaking about that which transcends language and thought, to try to put it in language and thought will always be incomplete. Hmm? But what enables us to not be troubled by those holes in the philosophy that are gaping for others? That is Sukriti. Hmm? <laughs> so we, we, we come to bhakti by bhakti. Hmm? Not by our own effort, but by bhakti. Still, once the agata sukriti has culminated to a certain point, then it's, it starts to become gata sukriti. So, with some knowing of what it is, we're involved. Hmm? Maybe our mother was a devotee, so we become curious, and with some knowing, we come and we get involved. And so, there was a prior background to that. Unknowingly we were involved. Hmm? Then from knowingly being involved we come to the point of of faith and we that it all start to click for us and make sense and and uh, even though as I say the philosophy will have its 
shortcomings. I mean, I think we do a pretty good job <laughs> of making a logical uh, case for the preoja and the ideal of, of, of preem, of divine love and so forth. Still, there are people who will remain mayavadis hmm, and think that the Advaitans, uh, for example, and think there's some, some gaping holes in our philosophy because they haven't got bhakti sukriti. Hmm? So this bhakti sukriti, this is Krishna's a kind of aggressive love expressed through the manifestation of himself in the form of his devotees who move in the world and so forth. And they naturally have empathy for people who are suffering, hmm? having experienced it. And so they readily seek to alleviate the sufferings of others by distributing them uh, to them Krishna consciousness and opportunities for service and so forth. Hmm. So in this way, our our beginnings in bhakti are not our choice. Hmm. Krishna is choosing us. So he initiates the relationship. He asks us out on a date before we ask him out on a date. Hmm. Uh, and he, do, he does that through his devotees. Uh, in one sense, they do it indiscriminately. Wherever they go, whatever they do, people are touched by that. Hmm? That's the nature of, the, of, of, of mercy. It doesn't decide where to go and where not to go. Hmm? It's like rain. Rain rains on the ocean and rain rains on the desert also. Hmm? It will have a different effect. If it rains on the ocean, it will be a flood. If it rains on the desert, it'll be a, you know, a blessing. Uh, so, uh, uh, different uh, receptacles will, relative to their own sukriti, <laughs> will respond to the mercy uh, differently. Hmm? But this kripa shakti, the, 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 the manifestation of, station of Krishna's mercy that is the devotees, this is uh, indiscriminately being spread in the world at all times to one extent or another and it will touch us and then then we make when we understand it when we have faith then we make some effort for it as well effort starts to come on our side in conjunction with the invite if you will from the other side we've been invited and you might ignore the invitation Maybe every year somebody sends you an invitation to come to their party and, and you ignore it. And, and one year you think, well, let me look at that invitation. And went, Maybe I will go. Sounds interesting. Yeah. So then you go and the next time invitation comes, you think, I like that. I think I'm, I'm going to go back. And next year you're waiting. When's that invitation coming? <laughs> A couple of years later, you're writing invitations to other people. Come to the party, something like that. Hmm? But it's initiated by Krishna. Hmm? And there's no beginning to that. Just like there's no beginning to karma. Hmm? He's always, always, always offering the invite, something like that. Yes? Uh, in the description of the autumn, 
in Ten Kento mm -hmm. is uh, uh, the statement that uh, the saint, saint persons, the sadhus, sometimes they're giving the mercy and sometimes they're not. Yeah. They're withdrawing. So what is the reason? That, because you mentioned Mahal, that it is all, always available on, at all times, but this is... Uh, it's always available at all times in the sense that there are many devotees. And while some are withdrawing, others are releasing, something like that. But what causes the devotees to give mercy and what causes them to withdraw? The Bhagavatam itself answers the question. It says, there's no reason for that. Uh, and we should be careful about that because we want there to be reasons for everything. Um, I have a fault in this regard. I'll tell you my biggest fault. Okay, My biggest fault is that <laughs> I, I expect unreasonable people to be reasonable. <laughs> I keep trying to be reasonable and I think certainly they will understand. <laughs> certainly they will be reasonable. Finally, I have to withdraw and think they're unreasonable. <laughs> Swami, they're unreasonable. Don't think they should be reasonable. They're unreasonable, something like that. So at any rate, sometimes the <laughs> devotees will withdraw <laughs> and they will think, hmm, hmm. <laughs> people cannot take advantage, people cannot understand. But then again, they'll come out like a cloud and rain and so forth. So it works something like that. Hmm? There's kind of, uh, Bhagavatam says, we don't know the reason, but I'm giving some kind of reason. <laughs> anyway, they share and they withdraw and they share. Hmm? Love is like that too. Love is like that. We, we want to share our love at times. And at times we see People can't take advantage of it, so I don't want to share it. I'll keep it private. Hmm? People get married, and then they drive down the street, and then there's sometimes they attach some tin can to their car and make a noise, and it's just married. It says on there, and driving through the town, and all you know, big, and people going beep beep, you know, yeah, congratulations, and so forth. You're in love. But that doesn't go on every day. <laughs> that everybody marks their car, we're in love, and uh, you know, <laughs> can only take it so much. So we want to show our love everywhere, but then we see, oh, people aren't always ready to appreciate it, so then we withdraw and keep it private, something like that. So love is like that. Yeah, it's moving like that. Yeah, right. <laughs> So, what else? Another question? Yes. Why did we have this 
Since we forget it, why did we have to go through it? Yes, since we forget it in the end, why did we have to go through it? I'm not sure of the logic of that. you want to remember it in the spiritual world? <laughs> it's something that you want to forget. <laughs> That's why you don't remember it. <laughs> but, you know, the, the question is, is, is kind of like a doubt. <laughs> but you shouldn't doubt that you are suffering. You're, it's like you're saying, maybe I'm not really suffering, and maybe there's really not a spiritual world. Hmm? Because if I go there and I forget everything, that seems like maybe so. Maybe it, uh, you shouldn't think like that. You're definitely suffering, hmm? and there are definitely examples of people who aren't suffering, hmm? whose example is worth worth pursuing. Hmm? I think maybe in another sense what you're asking is what is the point of suffering if there's no knowledge that comes from it? Right? If you suffer, there should be some... and there's no knowledge that comes from it, then what is the point of suffering? Is there anything to be learned from suffering? If, there, if I don't remember it, then why? And I didn't learn anything from it. What was the point of it? Am I just being punished for no reason? Hmm? Your question is something like that, I think. No? Hmm. 
teach in the Holy Roman Kingdom. Yeah, why have we all experienced that we, you know, the things that we have experienced since we don't remember them in the spiritual world? Once being in, you know, after all, in, in, a, re in a relationship with Krishna. So why have we, you know, why don't, uh, why have we, for, uh, what, what were they for, so to say, if we don't remember them? They were, well, they were meant to be forgotten. <laughs> That was the idea. <laughs> you want to know what the purpose of the material world is. What's the purpose of the world? You're saying, what's the purpose of the world if we don't remember it? <laughs> uh, well, in other words... But you're also, you're also saying, if we don't learn anything from it, if it has no positive content, hmm? if we go to the spiritual world and it's all gone, it's forgotten, then what value did it have? Hmm? Hmm? There, it has no it has no purpose. But but we find that it has it, it's it's very much uh, in one sense part of our ability to go to the spiritual world. It's it provides a negative impetus for us. Hmm? There's positive impetus, Krishna's inviting, but there's negative impetus that it's not very comfortable. I'm a soul and I'm in the body. I'm like a fish outside of water. Um, and, and so that's driving me, giving me negative impetus to move in the direction of um, spiritual life. Um, but why is material existence uh, one that uh, that constitutes uh, suffering? Hmm? Some questions um, like that are not so useful. Um, what's more useful is to acknowledge that we are suffering hmm? and that there is a remedy for that and that we should pursue that. What's happening in material existence is that jivas are interacting with maya. And it's problematic. And we know that because we're experiencing it. Hmm? You want to say, why is that happening? That's like saying, why is there God? Because the Tathasta Shakti and the Maya Shakti, they're part of God. As we said in our classes, Krishna means Krishna and the Shaktis. So I might as well ask, why is there God? But that question doesn't make a lot of sense. So why is there a material existence? It's like saying, why does God have a Maya Shakti? Why does God have a Tatasta Shakti? Hmm? I suppose we could come up with some reasons, but they won't satisfy everybody. Hmm? You could ask, why is God? I could give you a reason, and it might satisfy you, it might not. Therefore, it's more useful for us to just acknowledge the fact that that we are experiencing what the philosophy itself teaches. That we're a unit of subjective experiential capacity 
and we are interfacing ourselves with with objective non-experiential matter hmm? and we're as different as water and land hmm? and mixing together we're getting only mud which isn't water and which isn't land you can't swim in it and you can't stand in it hmm? So it's pro- in other words, it's problematic. That's what we're experiencing. Hmm? We have no reason to believe that at some point we weren't experiencing that. All we know is that ever since I've been experiencing, that's what I've been experiencing. And so that there is an alternative to that called bhakti, hmm? that should be the brightest uh, light in our lives. And we should t- take recourse to bhakti to remedy a problem that is not something to believe in or not believe in. We're experiencing it. Hmm? I mean, nobody says, do you believe in suffering? Of course, everybody experiences it, so of course we believe in it. I mean, it's not a question of belief. Hmm? So, is there any solution to that? Hmm? This is the question. If we find something that appears to be a solution, and we find that it, it even that there are even examples of it of it of it working and so forth, then to hesitate from pursuing that example on the basis of questions like why is there suffering is not very productive. Hmm? It's not very useful. Hmm? It's a question like why is there God? Why am I? Why am I? Why is God? Why is there God? Hmm? I mean, what am I going to say to that question? Why is there God? Why is there existence? Why is there experiential existence? I'm just glad there is. <laughs> that's what we are. We are because of that. Well, that's what we are. Why are we? Why is there anything? Hmm? Hmm? But the suffering of material existence is is instructive to us, it's useful. Hmm? If we pay attention, we learn from it. If I touch the fire and I get burnt, I think, well, I'm not going to do that again. So it's also a way of learning. Hmm? So, as I say, it has some negative impetus. There's other positive ways of learning by association. And I can tell you if you touch fire, you'll get burnt. You could learn if you trust me. If you don't, you touch the fire and you get burnt. Hmm? And if you're thoughtful, then you learn from that. Mistakes aren't bad. As long as you learn from them, they're quite good. Hmm? So to interact with matter is kind of a mistake, but we're doing it, and we should learn from it. Um, The fact that we, at some point, transcend material existence altogether hmm? and enter into love with Krishna in his leela and that that leela um, so overwhelms us that we don't remember the world shouldn't be a problem because we should understand another thing remembrance of the world is a result of something that's part of the material mechanism 
of our subtle body that's dissolved hmm, when we separate ourselves from it. So there's no, that memory is not part of the soul. Hmm? It's part of the subtle mechanism of the material illusory identity. So if you're going to unravel your illusory material identity, those memories that are part of that identity, that form it, are going to unravel also. Hmm? So there's a reason that you don't remember hmm? in that sense. And it's a, it's a good reason because the, the, the remembrance itself is part of the, the whole uh, composite experience and identity that's, that's uh, formed in material identification. Hmm? And also we don't remember material existence because um, the, 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 the powerful nature of, of, uh, of, of Krishna Leela. Hmm? There's no maya there. Hmm? Prem means that your consciousness is fully absorbed in Krishna. Hmm? And you're fully illuminated by, this, by Krishna's Sarup Shakti. So there's no there's there's no there's no scope for remembering something that that I mean it, it, maybe it's pro prominent to us now. So we're thinking we have all these memories. Some of them are good. I want to take my photos with me to Goloka, <laughs> put them on my fridge and so forth. And <laughs> but. <laughs> But uh, this is a res this kind of thinking is kind of a, a result of the uh, the measure to which we are identifying with a present material existence and liking it, despite how uncomfortable uh, it, it really is. Hmm? So, yeah, material life is something. It's like really from the perspective of spiritual life. Material life is like a nightmare, so you don't want to remember your nightmares. You want to forget about them. Mm -hmm. Yes? Oh, they suffer so much. Yes, but you see, the people of the people of the heavens, they came from the earth. <laughs> you see, they did good things on earth, therefore they went to heaven. Hmm? Yeah, and they they may come down, or they may. The, the bhakti you said in the Gita that those who are unsuccessful in yoga they go to heaven. Hmm? Right, and from there. They carry on. Hmm? Depends how unsuccessful they were. So, so there's uh, the, 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 yes. There's not as much suffering in the heavenly heavenly planets. The idea is, hmm? but the earth is said to be a better place for bhakti then, because it has both sides. Hmm? Heaven's not the best place. It's too it's too much fun materially. <laughs> so it's very unconducive for bhakti. Therefore, we find big. The gods and goddesses—they have a lot of some bhakti, but they're just—they—they—they're—they're they're overwhelmed by the complacency of the fact that they can enjoy without the same measure of material consequences. So it's a very, from a bhakti point of view, 
it's very un unsettling place. It's a very uh, unpleasant uh, idea. We, we, we would better appreciate the opportunity for negative impetus. Mm. Yes. You have something else? No. Okay. Uh, Bhakti is called, uh, uh, is described as a Svarat. Svarat? Independent. Uh, she's independent from Gyan and Karma and they assist on the Bhakti for training liberation. But uh, the part of Gyana, as I understood, understand, is this also at Atma Vidya, the knowledge that, that everyone is spirit soul and, and the, the Paramatma is dwelling with spirit soul in every, and every heart. It's also Gyan. But uh, in the third canto, Lord Kapira, uh, he's saying that someone who is, even he is worshipping me as a deity, but he's not, he has not this Gyan, he's not recognizing me in, in other hearts. He, he, his worship is like putting Gi in the ash. Mm -hmm. No result. So it depends, it seems that the Bhakti is, is somehow other, depending on Gyan. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the point is that there is bhakti inside of jnana. Hmm? Bhakti is not dependent upon jnana, but there is jnana inside of bhakti. Hmm? And that worship of Krishna that is not well informed with sambandha jnana, hmm? is not very fruitful. And Sambandha Gyan is not the knowledge of oneness between Jiva, Atma and Paramatma. It's the knowledge of the relationship between the Atma and the Paramatma. And the relationship between the Maya Shakti and Bhagwan or Paramatma and so forth. So there's a when we say um, bhakti is independent of of jnana. It doesn't mean that there's no jnana inside of bhakti. There is knowledge of the soul inside of bhakti, and the fact that the soul is different than the body and so forth. That's included inside of inside of bhakti. And so, as much as we're lacking in in sambandha jnana, our bhakti will not be very effective. Like for example. Without the lack of sambandha jnana is what gives rise to offenses in chanting. Therefore, some people think, without sambandha jnana, the name of Shiva or Ganesh or Durga, Krishna doesn't. There's no difference. So they chant Krishna, but they don't get much result because they don't have sambandha jnana. Hmm? Similarly, we say that Krishna is in the temple, the deity, hmm? in the temple. But we also say that Krishna is in the heart of every jiva. Bhakti Vinod said the essence of Dharma is. Uh, uh, what did he say? Jiva doi Krishna nam sarva dharma sar. Kindness to other, other living beings hmm? and chanting Krishna nam. This is the essence of Dharma. Hmm? So to see the deity in the temple, hmm, but not to see that Krishna is in the heart of others and therefore to disrespect others and so forth in effect is to disrespect uh, Krishna. 
Hmm? And it's lacking, lacking in samandagyan. So that type of worship will not be very fruitful. Hmm? This is, the, I mean, a strong language there, pouring ashes on the, on the fire or whatever it is. Uh, yeah, a strong language. I mean, there will be some benefit from it. Hmm? Some benefit from it. But it has to accrue to be meaningful hmm? to the point that the uh, object of worship, the deity, starts to be understood in terms of its universality. Hmm? The extent to which we do not understand the universality of our deity is to the extent to which we are suspect, subject to moral lapses in our practice. In other words, if we go in the temple, we'll conduct ourselves in a certain way. We may go outside and conduct ourselves in a different way. It means we didn't learn very much in the temple. Hmm? Because the teaching in the temple is that Krishna is, is everywhere. Hmm? We go to the temple to learn that Krishna is everywhere. <laughs> you think, well, why go to the temple if he's everywhere? Hmm? Because we can't see that he's everywhere. So we go to the temple. Hmm? We see him there. And if we properly approach him, hmm, gradually we start to see that he's everywhere. Then we don't need to go to the temple anymore. Hmm? Then we see him in a heart, in everyone's heart and so forth. Still we might go to set example and so forth. And he's there also in a nice way. So he may go and take advantage and so forth. Hmm? But, but the extent to which we do not understand the universality of our deity hmm, is to the extent to which our bhakti is lacking. That's the overarching teaching that's being given in that section. Hmm? But, it's tr it's, but it's true, the, the Kanishtadikari may not have that sensibility. What to speak of not seeing Krishna in the heart of other people won't even see it in the heart of a Vaishnava. <laughs> who's more advanced than himself. Bhagavatam also in the 11th canto calls this a materialistic devotee. Hmm? Um, so, what madhyama means, intermediate, as opposed to the neophyte, the kanishta, is the extent to which we actually want to make progress and grow in bhakti. Hmm? Mm -hmm. That's the extent. That's 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 the and we discriminate and so forth properly based on scripture. This is what madhyam uh, is about: it mindlessly serving uh, the deity. This is obviously not very fruitful. We won't say that it's absolutely there, there, there's no value in it whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But. Uh huh. Yeah, he's not giving it a very high rating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's using some strong language there. But we have to balance that with other statements in the scripture, hmm? wherein we find, for example, the the emphasis on bhakti being. Um, Swarup Siddha, hearing, chanting, 
archon, whatever we may think by doing them, there's some benefit. There are many examples of this as well. The story of the rat who used to steal the ghee, eat the ghee wicks. And he was so eager to eat the ghee wick, even though it was still burning, that he went in there and got and it got stuck on his nose, the rat. So he was going like this, trying to get it off. And he's offering Artik, and he got a benefit. So, <laughs> so such stories are there also, There's such examples to compare in a way, bhakti like fire, if you touch it, you're going to get burnt and so forth, regardless if you have any knowledge or not. But sometimes we may emphasize in the other way, for the sake of saying that bhakti with sambandha gyan, that will be fruitful. This is a real meaningful bhakti. Hmm? And this is what we should pursue. So some kind of strong statement like that has been made in, in third canto. Hmm? Yes. It's also, excuse me, it's also saying this. We worship the deity. What is the example? It's like pouring ghee on ashes rather than on the fire. It's saying if we worship the deity and start a fire like this in our heart and then we turn around and disrespect a person who's a walking temple because Krishna is in his heart, hmm? then the fire I've started, I've poured water on it. I've poured ashes on it. Hmm? So it's not saying that the action itself hmm, is counterproductive. But if that action, then combined with another action that's counter is counterproductive, then I'm canceling it to some extent out, something like that. So it's not saying that worshiping a deity in itself has no benefit. But if I worship the deity in such a way that it, that it causes me to, to disrespect uh, other human beings, not show kindness to them and so forth. So it's two things are being done, not just worshiping the deity. You're starting the fire and then you're putting the ashes. Okay. Yes. Bhakti is independent of jnana and karma. Um, and I have difficulty to understand like whether it's, uh, this statement is uh, like gen in general or um, because uh, in certain cases I think it's really hard for pure bhakti to manifest in someone's part like for instance when someone is really uh, mentally disabled or people who are psychopaths who are, uh, whose heart like cannot uh, uh, they have no compassion or empathy so um, I was wondering like maybe they get touched by bhakti uh, but it manifests in another life or yeah it may take time yeah of course gyan can be a little useful in the beginning of bhakti Hmm? And it depends how ignorant you are, how much useful it will be. <laughs> so, uh, if in order to do bhakti, one has to get 
one has to, I have to emphasize to you the difference between yourself and the body, hmm, which is gyan, more and more and more, hmm, in order for you to do bhakti, then what is little for you may seem more than for another. But the point of this statement that a little gyan, a little vairag in the beginning might be helpful, is that once bhakti actually takes off, hmm, then you don't need to hear, you're not the body and so forth like that, or any, you don't have to get any reasoning to engage in bhakti. In the beginning you may need some reasoning to engage in bhakti, but once you get a taste, then you don't need any reasoning. Then you have all kinds of reasoning to give other people why they should do bhakti. Hmm? So it is said, a little knowledge in the beginning may be useful. Hmm? So how little depends how ignorant you are. <laughs> Something like that. Yes. Because I heard that there's the advice that bhakti is producing jnana and vairagya, and this is valuable. That's true. Jnana which is producing bhakti, but not. Yes. Vairagya is a result, detachment is a result of bhakti, knowledge is a result of bhakti, more than it is the path of bhakti. Therefore, a little knowledge, a little detachment may be a little useful in the beginning, hmm? same point. Hmm? But when we do bhakti, regardless, jnana and bhairagi will, will also come hmm? in due course. So, then again, if someone cannot do bhakti without jnana, if my main way for getting them to do bhakti is to tell them you're not the body and, and, and they understand this point and so forth and that gets them, then that may be useful in the beginning. If they don't need that and they just do bhakti, and then theoretically it's possible all knowledge will come in them and so forth. So I think that sometimes in scripture we talk about the efficacy of bhakti in a manner in which it doesn't always appear to manifest, but nonetheless the potential for it to act in that way is there. So if you do one thing once in bhakti, you can get this result, because it happened once. It doesn't mean it will happen every time to everyone in every circumstance, but that efficacy is within bhakti, so we should do bhakti. At any minute something wonderful could happen, or it may take a long time. Hmm. Yes. Okay. So, so on one hand, this uh, this knowledge that I'm not the body. Okay. On the other hand, we need knowledge. 
That's what I'm saying. Without Sambandha Gyan, then your execution of hearing and chanting will not be very fruitful. But Sambandha Gyan is knowledge of not only Twam, but Tat also. It's knowledge of the Self and Bhagwan. So that knowledge is part of bhakti. Hmm? In one sense, when we say bhakti is independent of jnana, we mean you don't have to follow the jnana marg in order to do bhakti. Hmm? Just like in order to follow the jnana marg, You have to do niskam nishkam karma. Hmm? Once you've done nishkam karma sufficiently, then you can enter the Gyanmarg. Some people may argue, first you have to do nishkam karma, then you can do Gyan, then you can do Bhakti. We don't teach that. We say, bhakti is independent of jnana. Hmm? That means bhakti is independent of the path of jnana unto itself. Hmm? Because in order to do marg, you have to have a pure heart. That's what nishkam karma does. Nishkam karma purifies the heart. Then jnana will come in then you can cultivate that jnana and do meditation and so forth. Hmm? But if the heart's not pure, then it's difficult to sit hmm? because you have so many desires. So pursue the desires, give up the fruits of the desires, that will cleanse the heart. Then jnana will come in. But we see that bhakti goes into hearts that are not pure. And faith in bhakti awakens in those hearts. Hmm? So, therefore, bhakti is independent of jnana. She doesn't wait and say, first you have to get a pure heart and get jnana, then I will come. Hmm? She is more powerful. Hmm? So she can go to the impure heart that it has not done nishkam karma. Awaken faith in herself. Hmm? through uh, devotees. Hmm? And then those devotees will labor to give us some bandhagyan. Hmm? Knowledge of Krishna, of the difference between myself and matter. Hmm? 
what relationship I have with matter, what relationship matter has with Bhagwan. This is all Sambandagyan. And this kind of knowledge orients us for bhakti. The more we get Sambandagyan and our life becomes oriented in relation to this knowledge, the more the action that that knowledge fosters is bhakti. According to our orientation, conceptual orientation in life, we'll act. Hmm? So if our conceptual orientation is a bhakti orientation, that means sambandagyan, that will foster the action that is, that is bhakti. Hmm? So that kind of knowledge we're very interested in hmm? from the beginning. Hmm? And to the extent, therefore, Rupa Goswami says, the extent to which one has sambandagyan is the extent to which they're equipped to tread the path. Because the more you know what the path is, the more you understand what the goal is, the better suited you are for, 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 for following it. Hmm? Therefore, the uttamadikari, who's most eligible to tread the path, is one who is, uh, is well-versed in the, in the, in the, in the teaching. Hmm? So we, it's not that there's no knowledge in bhakti, but we're not interested in simply the knowledge between uh, the, the knowledge of oneness between atma and paramatma. Yes, there's a oneness, but we're interested in the difference also. Hmm? The oneness and the difference, which makes for then bhakti. If we are interested only in the oneness between ourself and Bhagwa and, and Brahman, that will not foster any bhakti, hmm? not any shuddha bhakti, not any love for its own sake. So sambandagyan is very important. Hmm? And theor there's theoretical sambandagyan and realized sambandagyan. Hmm? So when we The theoretical knowledge will be more useful to us in sadhana. Hmm. As we enter into bhava bhakti, hmm. for ourselves personally, it won't be as useful. Our bhakti is fully informed at that time. We know what is our identity with Krishna, and we're uh, we're cultivating that internally. Hmm. Hmm. Not much need for philosophy at that time unless we're going to teach others. Hmm. Hmm. Then we have to express some, some, some knowledge. But for our own practice, it is not required. Hmm. Hmm. And as you progress from bhava into prem, hmm, then we, we enter into golok, we said, and there's no knowledge of the Vedas there. It looks like just the opposite. Hmm. They, they, they're lacking knowledge of... Uh, the Gita and so forth. So is the appearance. Therefore, it's called Gyan Shunya Bhakti. Bhakti devoid of knowledge. They don't know that Krishna is the Supreme Personality of Godhead. But in order to not know, first you have to know. <laughs> but that kind of knowledge, that is Bhakti. So there's, there's knowledge that is Bhakti, and then there's the path of knowledge that is not Bhakti. And we don't need to do path of jnana in order to do bhakti. 
pewnie to moje pytanie jakby wpłynęło z moich doświadczeń w przeszłości, gdzie często no niestety okres mój też mi się to zdarza. Gdy wypadkowie często samo studiowanie Bhagavad Krishna Bhagavatam nie, jeszcze samo studiowanie, kiedy czytuję jakieś wersety i tak dalej z tych książek. Jak studiuję Bhagavadzicę, kiedy czytam Bhagavadzicę, kiedy nie mówię o Bhagavadzicie, So when I study the Bhagavatam and study the Bhagavad Gita, and then I speak about them, and I start to quote the verses, I often hear Dhyan Dhyan Dhyan, that Bhakti is more important. So I'm a little bit sensitive about this. I'm not sure I follow. If they have bhakti, then they should appreciate that gyan in the Gita that is given. Um, I think it is a little artificial for most devotees in your circle to say, we have no interest in the Gita. Hmm. Where is there any rasa in the Gita? We want rasa, bhakti rasa. Hmm. So Gita is a low, low thing. Why we should be interested in that? This is kind of like what you're saying maybe. Something like that. Hmm. You should remind them that Vishwanath Chakrabarti Thakur has written a commentary on Bhagavad Gita. Baladev Bidyabhushan has written a commentary on Bhagavad Gita. Hmm? Bhaktivinoda Thakur wrote two commentaries on Bhagavad Gita, and so on and so forth. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Krishna spoke Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> so, it might be worth listening to. But I will say that the middle six chapters they will be more attractive for devotees. We read the first six chapters and we give a sigh of relief when we come to the end of the sixth chapter and the seventh chapter begins. Because the first six chapters are all about tvam, about us. And we're not that interesting. Hmm? And the second six chapters are all about Tat, are all about him. And he's much more interesting. Hmm? And only when we see ourselves in relation to him do we become really interesting. Hmm? So the middle six chapters, they're all about Bhakti. They're a little more attractive than the first six chapters. And 
also then the last six chapters. But then there's also bhakti woven throughout. Hmm? So, yeah, I think that the 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 the, the some emphasis on jnana in the Gita and so forth is as useful for devotees as they have not realized that gyan. Hmm? And so it may be a little artificial for some people to express a lack of interest in sections of the Gita that focus more, for example, on what is the nature of the self, what is the difference between the self and matter, and so forth. Uh, one time, one of my godbrothers came to me. He had been listening to a guru in a different Gaudiya institution. He was an Iskand devotee and a guru. And he said, I'm listening to so-and-so, Maharaj, and he speaks about higher topics. And then when I try to talk about them to other devotees, they become a little confused. So he asked me, how was it that Sridhar Maharaj, who you heard from, was able to talk about higher topics in such a way that the devotees didn't become confused? And I'm thinking that the example you're giving of your experience is an example of devotees being confused and thinking they're, that they're, they're bored hearing that the, the knowledge in the Gita. Hmm? So, I said to him, Sridhar Maharaj did not speak that much about higher topics, sometimes, but he spoke in the highest way about the lowest things. Hmm? This is a sign of realization. Hmm? If you can go to the difference between the body and the soul and speak about it in such a comprehensive way and so forth that it's become very interesting and compelling and so forth. Hmm? This is some sign of realization that not that Krishna's feet are unattractive and only his face is attractive. Hmm? No. The whole package. That's why Vishwanath Chakravarti could find interest and time and relish to write a commentary, not on just only certain verses of Bhagavad Gita, but the whole of Bhagavad Gita. Hmm? So it, 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 there may at the same time come a point where one is more interested only in hearing Krishna Leela than hearing Bhagavad Gita. Hmm? Certainly. Hmm? But probably that's not the stage that most devotees are at. And if they are, then they should be giving the classes. Hmm? Tak, 
Because you have to use your reasoning, that's a good point. And the whole 11th canto of Bhagavatam is thought to be the intelligence of Krishna. The 10th canto is the smiling face. And the intelligence is the 11th canto. And there you find Bhagavad Gita again in the form of Uddhava Gita. The same same message. So it is very much, yes, using your intellect in bhakti, which is what the Gita recommends. Those who use their intelligence to study my words and explain them to others, he said, they're very dear to me. Hmm? Okay. So, all right, what's the time? Okay. So we'll stop there. It's been very nice again to be with all of you this year. And uh, I think all of the talks are recorded in Polish. You have to listen to Guru Vakya. Uh, translations. And, and um, some through somebody they should be available, I suppose. Hmm? Just ask and uh, then you can listen to them again if need be. And I look forward to visiting you again next year and you're all welcome to come and visit me. Gold Bhakti Vrinda Ki Jai, Gold Premanandi.